So we're still on the day of Pentecost. We're finishing chapter two. We're coming into the, the last portion of it. Um, the first part we talked about, really, who is the Holy Spirit and, and who is this that we're speaking of? The next part was, was Peter's sermon and explaining to the, the people who would listen who Jesus really is, who he, who he uh, was in, in the fullest sense. And so what we get to this morning is we get to the application of the sermon. Uh, we get to the point where the sermon has landed home and we see what God is going to do through them. So what we're looking at as we come to this portion, and this is sometimes easy to forget when you get to this portion because it's all focused on the people and what they're doing, is you have to remember this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is how the Holy Spirit works, is he applies his word preached, and then he brings it home. And so even as we look through this, that's what God is doing, is he is bringing his message home. So we'll see it in three basic pieces. First, how God uh, makes disciples, how God gathers disciples, and then finally, how God leads disciples to live together. Uh, so that's, that's going to be the kind of flow of the way that Luke tells this portion of the story. So you remember how last week ended. Um, at the end of, uh, of the sermon, uh, Peter looks to the people and he said to them, um, sorry, let all, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he leaves that hanging over them. This is the Jesus whom you crucified. And so the people's response goes like this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Notice that they were cut to the heart, not cut to the mind. They didn't say, mm, well, that was a bad decision that we made. And, and now intellectually, we understand, we grasp the truth of who this Jesus is. And so we're, we want to get on the right doctrinal page. They weren't cut to the mind. The cut went through the mind, but it landed in their heart. They were cut to the heart. Their hearts are now broken as they see what happened to Jesus Christ at their hands. And so they're, they're wounded by that. It's, it's a pretty graphic term, cut to the heart. They are wounded by what they have done. And also, I think probably a little rightly so, they're probably terrified too, because they probably didn't understand who this Jesus was. And Peter has just unpacked for them this great sermon explaining all the biblical prophecy, well, not all of it, but the big, big biblical prophecies about who this Jesus was. And you killed him. And that's a, that leaves them in just this dire situation. So this is who they killed. This is who Jesus, this Jesus whom they killed. This is what Peter tells them. First of all, Jesus, who God himself would not leave in the grave nor allow him to see decay. Had God done that for any other king? They all rotted. As a matter of fact, as Peter's point, he says, brothers, I can confidently say David's tomb is here and he's still in it. But this Jesus, God would not let him remain abandoned to death, nor would he let his body rot. He raised him again. So this is that Jesus. This is the Jesus who these 12 men who are standing up and speaking witnessed that he actually did rise from the dead. It didn't happen in, in private, hidden someplace. There are 12 people standing before them going, we saw him. He is definitely alive. This is absolute truth. This is the Jesus who has the authority, who has been granted the authority to pour out God's Holy Spirit on whomever he will. That's what Peter told him is, we're not drunk. Jesus received the promise for the Father, and he pours that promise out on us. Did God ever give that capability to any king in Israel, any prophet in Israel? God retains that for himself, but this Jesus whom you killed has the authority to dispense the Holy Spirit as he pleases. This Jesus that you killed is David's son, and yet he's not David's son. He's David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's greater than David. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than any king you have ever seen because he's David's Lord. He's, he's one notch above. This is that Jesus whom you killed. And this Jesus who you killed has now been exalted to the right hand of God. This Jesus who's been murdered, he rose again from the dead, and he now is ascended into heaven and seats, is seated, seated at the right hand of God's power and his authority. And you killed him. 
That's the message that he's just preached to them. Can you see why they would be cut to the heart? They're probably thinking at this point, oh my gosh, what have we done? We thought he was just some pretender. But God raised him? God gave him this much authority? The natural response to that is, brothers, what should we do? <laughs> we are in big trouble. So the, the big question there, and it really, this question and this answer frame the rest of this section. The question is important. And that's why last Sunday I left the sermon just hang because it's the question we all have to face is, what shall we do? And then Peter answers. Peter gives, him the direct, gives them the direct and clear answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's his answer. That's what you do. As they're looking at this Jesus, who is this exalted and majestic king who's ascended into heaven, who's received all power and authority, they've killed him. They look and they say, what do we do about this? And Peter's response is, run to him. Flee to him. Not run from him. Not try to hide, but run to him. And don't run to him thinking that you're going to make it up to him. The very first word he says is, repent. Flee to this Jesus Christ and change your mind. Change your direction. Think differently about him. You didn't understand who he was, and so you killed him. Now is the time to change your mind, to repent. So that word repent, that's what it's about. It's not just feel bad. They felt bad, didn't they? They were cut to the heart. They've got the feel bad checked off. What do they do now? You repent. You change. Uh, this one person on Twitter that I follow said something this week has really nothing to do with this sermon, but I thought this was a perfect way to explain repentance. She said, I took the Twitter app off my phone for the month of May to repent of not prioritizing my time. She took Twitter off her phone because she spent too much time on it, and she did that not to make up for, but to repent of. So do you see what she did? She said, I, am, I realize I've done something wrong. I'm wasting my time. I'm not prioritizing things right. I'm spending too much time on Twitter. So I repent of that by taking the app off my phone, not feeling bad about it. She took an action. And that's what repentance is, is to say, this is what I've done wrong. And now I'm going to take decisive steps in another direction. I'm going to change my actions. So that's what Peter has told them to do, is first of all, repent. Remember the story of Judas. Judas felt bad, didn't he? He felt really bad about what happened. He, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He takes the silver, he throws it back in the treasury, and he says, I, I don't want it, take it away. But he never repented. Instead, he went and hung himself. He couldn't flee to Christ. He fled from him. There was no place for repentance for him. So to repent is the first order of business. Repent, change your mind, change your ways. The next thing that he tells them to do is repent and be baptized. This, this baptism is not just the baptism of John. This is the baptism in Jesus' name. So what that means is you had a wrong opinion about Jesus Christ. You have changed your mind. And now as you come into baptism, what you're saying is, I am being baptized in his name. He has the authority. He has the rightful rule over me. I am submitting to him because I am submitting to him in baptism. That's repentance that actually has legs. It does something. It changes its mind. It changes its actions. To say, well, I'm really sorry, Jesus, and then walk away is not enough. But to say, Jesus, I'm sorry, and I now submit to you, so Jesus is the one whose name they will be baptized in. Now, the next thing that he says is the one that, that causes some concern, especially among evangelicals for some reason. He says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So are we baptized in order to have forgiveness? Is, is, that's what it says. That's the very words, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So... What does it mean? What are we getting at here? What's, what's happening? Well, first of all, the whole thing hangs on a preposition, which is dodgy business to begin with when you have to deal with prepositions because prepositions are tricky things. They can go either direction. So, for example, uh, the word there is for, for the forgiveness of sins. So how does the for work? There's two ways it could work. 
It could be in light of. So she was sent to jail for stealing a car. She wasn't sent to jail so that she could steal a car. She stole the car, and therefore she was sent to jail. So you could say she was sent to jail in light of or because of the fact that she stole the car. So that would be this idea that baptism for the forgiveness of sins is you have to be baptized in order to be forgiven of sins. The other way is, it kind of goes the other direction, he gave her an engagement ring, or he gave her a ring for their engagement. So giving the ring, actually I got that backwards. <laughs> I meant to swap these in my notes. So he gave her a ring for their engagement. The engagement took place when he had given her the ring and now they are formally engaged. So the giving of the ring led to the engagement. So that would be the idea of you have to be baptized in order to be forgiven. That's the first step. Or it could be you, have been, you, you baptized in light of the forgiveness of sins that you received. Did I mangle that? I think I did. We'll, we'll, we'll unpack it here. We, we got, I got some scriptures that will help me out, tell me out of this mess. So that's the two ways four could work, right? So how do you answer this question? Which direction do we take that, prep, that preposition? Is it causative or is it because of? Well, the way to answer that is we have to look at some more scripture. We have to find out what, what other scriptures say about this. So um, in favor of being baptized in order to be forgiven of your sins, um, when Paul is converted, he goes to Damascus, and Ananias comes to him, and he's baptized. Later on in Acts, when Paul is retelling the story, he says, Ananias told me, rise and be baptized and wash your sins away. So that would seem to mean you must be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven. Um, but that's not the only scripture, and there's more. So look at, look at what else is going on here. Um, in Acts chapter 10, verse 43 it says, to him, all the prophets bear witness, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. So here's an example of everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. It's not baptism that you receive forgiveness. It's faith in Christ in this instance where you for receive forgiveness. But that's not all the Bible says about it. So Peter is speaking to Cornelius' household, and that's what he tells him is they will be forgiven because they believe. Another place is 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's another example. Now it's not, it's not just believing, it's also confessing our sins, and then we receive forgiveness. And then finally, in Acts 3.19, which is coming up pretty soon, um, Peter says, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So in that instance, it's repentance that leads to the removal of sins or forgiveness. So those are the scriptures. If we kind of gather those together, put our arms around all of it, how do we then interpret this idea of being baptized for the forgiveness of sins? Well, look at what just happened. Peter's first command is, you killed Jesus. And they feel that. They become convicted of their sins. They don't say, they don't, the next thing out of their mouth is not, well, we didn't mean it. Or, no, we didn't. There is, brothers, what shall we do? There's a confession of their guilt. Peter says, you've confessed. Now you repent. So now they, they've come to repentance. They say, we change our mind about this Jesus. And he says, now be baptized. So I would take that for because they repented, they confessed, they believed. I would take that as in light of the fact that you have been forgiven, for you have been forgiven of your sins. So I, I, I am trying not to twist the scriptures or trying to you know, make it more comfortable because baptism is part of that, isn't it? We still have baptism in the equation. Rise and be baptized so that your sins are washed away. So then the question is, well, how does baptism fit into that? Well, baptism is a number of things in the Bible. There's a number of different things, but one of them is this confession, this open confession of identity with Christ. So if you have believed, if you have confessed, if you have repented, then the next step is logically this public identification with him. Now, that's not all that can be said about baptism, but I think in light of this section, this is what Peter is commanding them. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, because your sins have been forgiven. 
And then the last thing that he tells them is receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you've confessed, you've believed, you've repented, you're seeking baptism, and what God promises now is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So likewise, does baptism confer the Holy Spirit? There's some Christian traditions that believe that's what baptism does, is that it will confer the Holy Spirit on you in baptism. And doesn't it say that? That's what it says right there. Um, Again, I want to back up and take a broader look at the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about this? And the, the first one, we'll see this in, a, in, a, in a, probably a couple of months now, thinking about it. Chapter 8, uh, Philip goes to Samaria, and it says in verse 12, but when they believed Philip, he pre- as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip goes to Samaria, he preaches about Jesus, they believe Jesus, and they're baptized. But, we skip down to verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is what Peter said. So here's an instance where baptism did not confer the Holy Spirit. What conferred the Holy Spirit was Peter and John coming down and laying hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them. The other one is Cornelius, who I mentioned earlier. Cornelius, God practically, I I can't wait to preach this one. God has to practically drag Peter there. He gets to the house and he begins to preaching to these Gentiles, which this is a big problem for the church is what do we do with Gentiles? He's preaching to the Gentiles and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on them. And verse 46 of chapter 10 says, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold the waters of baptism for these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So here's where the Holy Spirit falls on them before baptism. And then the Samaritans, he falls on them way after baptism. So um, I, I don't think that it's a complete biblical picture to say baptism confers the Holy Spirit. There, there are a number of places in the um, book of Acts where the Holy Spirit does fall on people when they're baptized. But the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not a power. He's not an equation. He is a person. And he will come on people when he decides he will come on people. And that's how that works. So the Spirit falls on them in response to their baptism, but he does it in his own time, in his own way. Now, with those examples, why is it that the Holy Spirit did it that way? Why would he not fall on them immediately? Why would he not fill them immediately? Why is it that in these cases they spoke with tongues, in other cases they don't? Well, one of the things that happens here is these are cutting-edge ministries. These are where the the, the gospel is going forward. So Jesus told them, you will be my my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. Wait a minute, Samaria is the bad place. They're the apostates. They're the weirdos. We don't go to Samaria. Yeah, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. So when they go and they preach the gospel in Samaria and these people believe, God wanted them to see the Holy Spirit is going to come on them just like he did on others. But it's through the authority of the church. And so it's not until John and Peter show up that the Holy Spirit falls. Cornelius, Gentiles in the church? But we're all Jewish, and Jesus was a Jew, and this is all a Jewish religion, and it's all based on the Jewish scriptures. What do we do with Gentiles? The Holy Spirit shows up and says, what you do with Gentiles is you baptize them. That's what you do with Gentiles. So the the Holy Spirit shows up in these magnificent ways at these cutting edges, at these leading points. So when Peter then tells them, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, what he's telling them is what he said at the very beginning of the sermon. You guys, we're not drunk. This isn't, this isn't something weird. This is exactly what God has said, is that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. That's what God said through Joel. This is nothing new. This isn't a surprise. That's why we're telling you about Jesus Christ. This Jesus who has ascended into the right hand of God, he received the promise for the Father, and he pours him out on whomever he will. So now what he's doing is he's looking to these disciples, and he's saying, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you too. He's extending that promise to them. So that's what he means by, um, by if you do these things, you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's because that's what Jesus is doing. That's what God is up to. So uh, Peter's answer there is really 
leading us to show, see what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to become a disciple? Um, first of all, it's God who grants this repentance. The command, Paul or Peter commanded them, repent. It is a command. It is something you must do. And yet it is God's gift. Um, as a matter of fact, in, in Acts 11, verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, they all fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Speaking of Cornelius, because Peter comes back to the church, and they're going, Wait, you ate with a Gentile? And he goes, You guys don't hunt. You've got to hear the whole story. And so this is the church's response when they say, Oh, you ate with a Gentile. It's like, God has granted repentance to Gentiles, too. So God grants repentance. That's uh, 2 Timothy 2.25 says the same thing. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance is a gift of God. So I said this is what the Holy Spirit does, right? This is how the Holy Spirit does these things is he uses the voice of Peter saying, repent. And then in some, he grants repentance. He gives them the ability to repent. He gives them the repentance they need. God grants repentance. God has commanded that we be baptized. Matthew 28. It's out on the wall. You'll see it when you leave. Acts chapter 2. He's telling them here, be baptized. Acts 22. Acts chapter 9. When Cornelius or when Ananias comes to Paul, he says, be baptized. So God commands baptism. God also is the one who sends his Holy Spirit. It's God has given to Jesus the promise, and he says, dispense that as you will. And so it's God who grants the Holy Spirit. He pours him out. So if we take all of those together, what we have to say is God makes disciples. But, and this is the important part, and this is really the book of Acts, God makes disciples, but he does it through his church. He does it through his people. He does it through the community of faith. He doesn't do it from on high, departed from anything else. He uses his people to do that. Peter's sermon was effective but Peter's sermon was effective because it's God who makes disciples. It's God who is at work. And so that's what he did. So this promise of the Holy Spirit is, is just a continuation of that, is part of that. And that's what Peter says next. He says, for this promise, in verse 39, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, whomever will, uh, who, everyone whom the Lord will call to himself. This promise, which promise? The promise he just said Jesus has been given him authority over. The promise Jesus told him in chapter 1, you wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father arrives. The promise that at the end of Luke chapter 24, God, uh, Jesus said, the promise of the Father will be given to you. This promise is to you. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, pouring out upon all flesh is for you. What a tremendous promise. And it's not just for you. It's for your children. It's for your offspring, and not just the nation of Israel. It's for everyone, everybody, far off, all over the world. This promise is going to come upon them, and the deciding factor is all who the Lord will call to himself. That's who he will bestow the Spirit on. That's who he will give the Spirit to. And it is God's delight to give people the Holy Spirit. He loves to do that. And we got that from Jesus himself. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How begrudgingly do you give your children good gifts? If you're a decent father, if you're a decent mother, you love to give your children appropriate things. You don't give them, you know, uh, Skittles for dinner, but you would give that you would delight to give your children good things. And you're evil, by the way. So how much more would a perfect, just, and holy God delight to pour out on you his spirit? This is God's promise. It's not his begrudging, oh, I guess I have to. It's something that he wants to do. He loves to pour out his spirit on his people. So ask. Ask him, Lord, I don't have enough spirit. Would you give me more of your Holy Spirit? Make him more obvious and, and working in my life today. I want more of him because your heavenly father promises I love to do that. That's a prayer I love to answer, and I will give you more. So this is how disciples are made. This is, this is where this comes from. And what Peter has just reminded us is this is not a geographically isolated area, a promise, incident. It's not limited to a specific people group. 
He will give his spirit to you Jews, to your children, to the nation around you, and to those who are far off. Every nation in the world will receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of the Father. That's the good news. That's where this, uh, this sermon goes. So that's how God makes disciples. That's what he does with that. Now, the next thing that happens is God gathers disciples. He makes them and then he gathers them. So listen to what the response to Peter's exhortation is, beginning in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued exhorting them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's the response that God has done. Remember, I said God makes disciples. And in this day, God made about 3,000 disciples. But he... Notice, I didn't notice this until I was preparing for it. With many other words, he bore witness. So it wasn't just the end of the sermon. Peter continued to exhort them and call them and, and tell them about Jesus and tell them, please come. And then they were baptized. There were 3,000 baptized. But in the middle of it, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's how Jesus spoke. This wicked generation, this crooked generation. Peter says, you need to separate yourself from this crooked generation. There, there is problems there, um, and, and you need to turn from it. This entire, we get focused on the 3,000, we get focused on the 12, we get focused on the 160 that are there preaching, and we forget that there's a whole gigantic world outside of that that isn't believing. They're not trusting in Christ. They're, they're believing in their own goodness. They're believing in foreign gods. They're believing in demons. They're believing in no gods. They're believing in all kinds of other things. The church at this point is tiny. It's just a small little group. There is a whole world to be won. There is a whole world to be gained here. Jesus' command was start in Jerusalem, then to Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. They're just beginning. They have a lot of work to do. So when you look at that, what are the odds that they're facing? They're pretty bad. How are we going to bring this message to the entire world? We're so small. And, and this podcast that I listened to um, was uh, an atheist and a Christian analyzing the story of Christianity. And that was one of the, the things that both of them were just amazed at, is how this small group of people could change the entire world. How could this message live? And not only live, but change the entire Roman Empire, change all of the world. How could this small little group happen? Well, that's because God makes disciples. And he uses people like you and I. So revival is possible. It, it, it can happen, but it depends on God and not us. Um, and if we pay attention to too much news, we can become discouraged. Because what we see largely in the West is a turning away from Christian heritage, if, if not outright Christianity, at least from a Christian sense of morality, a, a, a moving away from that. The most recent example of that was that Ireland just recently voted to abolish the ban on abortion. Now, Ireland has been traditionally, strongly, staunchly Roman Catholic. And so what this looks like is this last domino falling for Europe, is this last bastion, this last hope of any kind of Christian morality is gone. And one commentator on, um, on uh, Twitter said, exit polls suggest a strong pro-abortion vote in Ireland. As I said last night, we need to think of the West as a re-paganized periphery. Kiri eleison, Christi eleison. So what he's saying is he's, he's looking at this last fall of Ireland and he's saying we need to think of Europe as the, or think of the West as post-Christian, as re-paganized. And that seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? It seems like, well, that can't be. Folks, it can be. Read the book of Kings and Chronicles. It can happen. And it happens regularly. As a matter of fact, it happened before in Europe. After the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe became what they called repaganized, where pagan religions were spread across Europe again. It looked like it might be the end of Christianity in Europe. It happened. This was in the fifth and sixth centuries. And then the Irish showed up. St. Patrick had gone to Ireland. He, by the way, he's not a saint. Nobody sainted him. But he's a saint because we're all saints if we're in Christ. 
So Patrick goes to Ireland and he begins this ministry, this incredible church planting ministry, and suddenly Ireland goes from being this, this holdout of pagans to this thriving Christian community. While that's spreading across Ireland, Europe falls. Paganism starts to rise again across Europe. So the Irish up and they go to Scotland and they start building monasteries and they begin to preach the gospel and share the good news. And then they move into Europe. And so there's a book written called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Um, that may be a little bit of hyperbole. It might be a little overstatement. If you're Irish, it's totally not. If you're not Irish, maybe a little bit. Um, but it's still a wonderful history of the fact that Europe fell. And the last people on the earth that you would think would be able to do it brought this, the gospel back to them. Ireland was viewed at that point as the ends of the earth. The Celts had been chased from the Middle East all the way across Europe, and they landed on Ireland, and people said, good riddance, they'll die there. So they were kind of like, these are unreachable people. They're, they're just the most horrible folks on the face of the earth. And then Patrick shows up, and God brings revival. And they come back, and they save Europe. So as we watch the Western culture continue to turn away from what we would consider Christian values, Christian morality, biblical understandings, don't despair. Lament, because what it means in Ireland when they voted to abolish the ban on abortion, when you see the people raising their hands and cheering, is there, what they're saying is, yay, we can kill our children now. Lament that. That's horrible. But don't despair, because God can spark revival, and he can do it with very few people, with a small little movement. This book that I've got, I, I, um, I picked up recently, it's called The God-Sized Vision. It's written by one of my seminary professors. And what the book is, is he just goes through the history of revival, just moves through one revival after another with a historian's eye to it. And Dr. Woodbridge, I think, was present at all of them. <laughs> I could swear he was there with, with Edwards when the Great Awakening happened. But what he says is he kind of goes through it, and he says, now there's a pattern to this. So listen to how he explains this. By now, a revival pattern has come into focus. Following a period of spiritual decline, someone steps forward to acknowledge failure to live according to God's good and gracious law. Others begin to see the problem, and they turn from their wayward path. God may hear their petition and answer their cry with revival. In the revival that broke out under Ezra and Nehemiah, the role of remembrance stands out. When the people remembered the pattern of human disobedience and divine faithfulness, they cast their cares on the Lord as their only hope. He had saved their ancestors from worse plight. Those who familiarize themselves with redemptive history learn that God sends revival, not merely for their sake, but for the glory of his name. So when we look at the pattern of revival, what you see is a decline. Guess what, folks? The West is declining. No surprise there. There comes this, this period of decline. And what's nice about a period of, not nice, that's a strong word. What, what's helpful about a period of decline is now you begin to separate the wheat and the chaff. It's no longer comfortable to go to church and not really believe any of that stuff. Now, if you associate with those Christians or those evangelicals, you're branded. And so it begins to really kind of separate the sheeps and the goats for a little bit. And so we might see our numbers dwindle. We'll see our political influence dwindle. We'll see all of these things happen, but it, it shows a clearer divide. And so now when we step forward and we have a gospel message, which, by the way, we will have to retool in this new setting, we'll have to figure out how to preach this in this new approach because this, these people, I'm not saying change the gospel. I'll explain that in a second. We need to figure out how to preach to this new situation because they have been immunized against the gospel. They have heard it all their lives and they've seen how horrible these Christians are and how terrible they treat people and they hate everyone and why would I believe any of that? But now we've got this gap, and so what we can do is look to the, the current situation. It's going to take a little bit for this culture to emerge, this new, really paganized culture to emerge, and us to say, now how do we preach the gospel to them? How do we speak truth to them? Our history has been uh, guilt and repentance. And so we tend to preach, uh, you're a sinner, and God is really angry at you, and you need to repent. And that's because in our Western culture, that had been the idea is that we have this sense of guilt about us. Well, in this new setting, people are going, who, did you, who are you to tell me I'm wrong? 
who do you think you are? Define for me what's right and what's wrong. How do you get that? That's not any of your business. So we can't start necessarily with guilt like we used to. We'll have to start someplace else, and we'll just have to wait a little while to see how it emerges to figure out what the best response will be. Just pray that God sends somebody to figure that out. There was a book written a number of years ago called Filipino Christian or Filipino Religious Consciousness. Is that a cool name or what? <laughs> uh, what happened was this guy was a, a missionary to the Philippines, and as he's witnessing to the Filipinos, he says, well, they're nominally Roman Catholic. There's this Roman Catholic veneer. But if you talk about guilt and, and repentance and forgiveness, it doesn't really resonate with them. What is underneath that veneer, this is the Filipino religious consciousness, is at its root animism. And animism says we are ruled by spirits and by powers of nature. And what the animist heart wants is authority to get over those powers, to escape that authority. And so he said what he did was as he was preaching the gospel is he didn't leave out guilt and, and repentance. But where his accent fell, where he really brought it forward, was he talked about Jesus Christ has defeated all of your foes. There is not a spiritual power in the world that can stand against him. He submitted to them, he died under their authority, and then he rose and triumphed over everything that opposes you. He led host, he led a captive host and paraded them. The spiritual powers that, that affect you have been broken. And he said that's when you could see the Filipinos light up. So there was this nominal Christianity over top of it, but at its root, it was essentially animism. How do I, how do I escape these powers? So that's what we've got to do as we're looking to preach this gospel of Jesus Christ in this new setting is we've got to figure out what the underlying premise is. I think what it is is basically Darwinism, which is there's no point, there's no hope, we're just bare naked animals, we're no different than anything else, so what's the big deal? So how do you preach a gospel into that? I think the way you preach a gospel into that, look, I'm answering my own prayer now. <laughs> Come up with an answer for this. The, the, I think the way you preach the gospel into that is you talk about the imago Dei. Human beings are not naked animals. Human beings are unique creatures created in God's image. God spoke about humans being unique. We are unlike any other creature on this earth. And that's where the hope might come from. So we might have to start with the imago Dei and then talk about the fact that it's broken and that God is restoring it. He's bringing that back. So you may behave like an animal now. You may rut like an animal now, but there is hope that we will be delivered from this, this broken creation. So that's what revival can do. So as we're looking at the, the fall of the West as the turn of the West, don't lose hope. Look at what Peter did. 3,000 souls in one day. And then it kept going. We'll see that in a minute. They kept adding people to it. It didn't end at 3,000. They didn't go, well, we got 3,000, let's go home. God kept bringing people in and bringing people in and bringing people in. In the face of fierce opposition to Jesus Christ, in the face of this Jesus is a charlatan and a fake, and the gospel message goes out and it breaks through all of that. And 3,000 were added that day. So lament the fall of the West, the turn of the West, but don't despair of it. Let's be faithful in the midst of it. And so that's how God uh, gathers these disciples. He, he draws them together. In the midst of a hostile environment, he calls them to himself. And then finally, we look at, we get this peek into how the, the disciples began to live. How did God lead them to live together? Starting in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Pause. This is what they did. They heard the message. They were baptized in Jesus' name. They came together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Is that normative? Is that descriptive? Or is that prescriptive? Is that something we should do? Well, I've told you before, the way you figure that out is you look through the rest of the scriptures. Did the church continue to adhere to the apostles' teaching? In my estimation, that is the rest of the New Testament. I would say yes, they adhered to the apostles' teaching, even after the death of the apostles, because the apostles wrote. Did they continue in fellowship? Yes, they did. They were constantly getting together. Breaking of bread, tempted here to say, yeah, that's communion. It's not communion in this setting. 
Communion, as we celebrate, as we understand communion, probably didn't exist yet. They were, they were celebrating a Lord's Supper with a gigantic meal together. Um, we have since then ritualized it, but they, they ate together. They had fellowship, and not just on Sunday morning saying, hi, I hope you have a good week. They would eat together. And you know what we do in our small groups? We eat. <laughs> we eat a lot. We eat some good food. Uh, tonight, you guys meeting tonight? Yep. Tonight at, uh, at the Stromberg's home, what's the menu? Uh, it's bean soup. Bean soup. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to have bean soup. And we're going to have the apostles' teaching because they're going to just look at the scriptures. So that's what's going on. What about prayer? Did the church ever pray again? I, I seem to think there might be a couple more prayers in the Bible. So I would say that these elements are really prescriptive. This is what a group of disciples do, is they have fellowship, they have apostolic teaching, they have prayer together. That's what we do as a body of Christ. That's what we do as believers together. Now, what comes next? And awe came upon every soul, and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Descriptive or prescriptive? If we have an apostle show up, they will do signs and wonders. But the 12 are dead. So we're not going to have an apostle show up. So I would say that was describing what happened in the ministry of the apostles, is they did signs and wonders. That doesn't mean God can't do signs and wonders. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. But it means that we don't have an apostle show up and do that. And all who believed were together and held all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to all uh, the proceeds to all as they had need. Descriptive or prescriptive? This is a trick question. I'll just answer it for you. Both. Both. We don't see, when you come into church, we don't say, okay, sign over the title to your home and your car, and we're going to sell it, and we're going to split the money up. That part is not something that describes what the church does, but the principle does, doesn't it? We are generous to each other. If we find out somebody has a need in this church, we respond we have a benevolence fund if they need money. Sometimes we don't use the benevolence fund. People just give them money. We have um, a ministry of if there's a problem in a household and food is needed, we have people who run food over. This is what the deacons are, are leading that effort. They're, they're coordinating all of that to make sure that we are providing for each other, that we love and provide for each other. So this idea of selling everything and having a common good, the generosity at the heart of that is still part of who the church is. It's part of what the church does. And day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts. There is no more temple. It's gone. It turned into a pile of rubble in 70 AD, so we don't have to go back to the temple. But what they did is they attended temple together. They spent time together. And like I was saying, that's what our small groups are, is we're gathering together. And, and breaking bread, and, and we're uh, sharing with generous and glad hearts. Now, one of the problems is that word generous um, is hard to translate. It, it, if you have an NIV or NAS, it says glad and sincere hearts. Uh, if you have a King James, it says with singleness of heart. Or if you got the New English translation, it says a humble heart. Um, so which is it? Yeah, probably all of them. That kind of hints at what's going on. Uh, like I said, the word is a little difficult to translate. That's why we get some variation on it. But that's basically what is going on is this singleness of heart, this sincerity of heart, this gladness of heart, this generosity that flows out of that. That's what was at the heart of their fellowship. That's how they came together. And then finally, they were praising God, and they were having favor with all the people. Now, when they were praising God, they're in the temple, they're praising God, and they had favor with all the people. Not all the church. Not within their little group. They had favor with all the people. As people are looking at them, they're saying there's something unique about these folks. There's something different about them. Look at the gladness of heart that they have. Look at the generosity that they have. Remember, Peter is going to come into the temple and a beggar is going to say, um, so you got some change. because I don't have gold or silver, but what I have, I give you. Be healed. That's a generous heart. He's giving. And so the, the people are looking at them and saying, there's something different about these folks, and we like that. So maybe in this turning of the West, in this fading of the West, our morality, our, our hope, our joy, our love of each other will shine more brightly in that than it has in the past. And we will, maybe we'll find favor with all people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It didn't end Pentecost morning. It continued. It kept going. It, didn't, it, it wasn't a Pentecost moment where there were 3,000 jumping on board, but God kept calling and adding to their number. 3,012, 3,020, 3,018. He kept calling and calling and calling those who would be saved. So the revival's not over. God continues to work. And that's true for us today. The revival is still not over. It waxes strong. It waxes weak. Some days 3,000s are added. Some days two are added. The revival continues as God is going out and bringing people to himself. So there were two things in this last portion that stood out to me as what it means to be a disciple. Um, They found favor. Verse 47, they found favor. But remember where this began in verse 13? Some mocked. So there will be times when people will point at you and go, you are so backwards. How can you not get on board with this latest political thing that I just got excited about yesterday? Uh, The favorite phrase is, you're on the wrong side of history. Really? So you've been to the future and you've seen history, and now you know I'm on the wrong side of it? That's a horrible phrase when somebody says you're on the wrong side of history. It's extremely presumptuous. So some will, some will mock, and, and in some eyes, we will find favor. And part of that finding favor is, I think, what, what Luke was hinting at there is the way they live together, worshiping the Lord, being generous to each other, kind, loving each other, supplying for each other. This overflowing generosity led them to find favor with all people. So in a small little way, we're going to try to do that this week. We're going to go to Antelope Valley College. We're going to set up a tent, and we're going to hand out water bottles to people and expect nothing in return. That blows people's mind. When you hand them a bottle of water, they go, "Uh, do you want a donation? No, won't take it. What do you want? Nothing. Just go and do well on your tests. And that just blows people away. We're not faking generosity here. You people have downloaded so much water on us in the past. That is a genuinely generous heart. What we want to do is we want to go out and show that to people. But that's not enough. There are other groups on campus who will give away free things. Uh, There are gyms that come out and give away keychains and stuff trying to get people to join them. So the generosity is not enough. The other half of that is what Peter did. This Jesus Christ whom you crucified. We have to say the words. If we don't announce the gospel, we're not doing evangelism. So our going and handing out water bottles at AVC is not evangelism. It's generosity. It's when somebody comes and says, why are you people doing this? You are weird. I've never seen anybody like that before. Then we can say, let me tell you about my Savior. Let me tell you why I can do this. Let me tell you why we desire to do this. We know a savior who was killed at the hands of wicked people and he rose again. After three days, death couldn't hold him. And now he ascends into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God. This is the savior that we announce to you. So the two components need to be there, especially in this growing, wary culture. One of the growing attributes in, in Western culture is cynicism, is they just don't believe anything. I think the internet fuels that too because you see something and you just it's immediately easy to be snarky about it. So there's this cynical attitude about everything. And so when we come and we give things away, there is immediate suspicion you want something from me. And so that's what can really connect with people when we say we don't want anything from you. You can't give us anything. But let us offer you something. And and that's where we go. So don't be overwhelmed by the way that, that, that our society continues to step further and further away from its Christian heritage. Don't be dismayed by that. Be hopeful in the light of it. Look what Peter did. Look what God does as he makes disciples, as he leads them together, and as that he causes them to live together. Is That's the catalyst by which the gospel continues to go out. That is Pentecost Sunday, or Pentecost uh, morning in Israel. This is what God has done. He has just created a handful of disciples. And these disciples will go on to create more disciples. 
and they will change the world. That's why I said this book is about Jesus' disciples making disciples. And this is the first instance of it. This is where it breaks out. And now the rest of the book, we'll see more and more disciples added, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. We'll gather more and more disciples as we go. So that's, that's the premise. That's what Luke has just set up for us with this, this firecracker that went off on Pentecost morning. And so that's where we are. That's the, the, the explosion we stand in. So consider joining us out at ABC and being generous and not expecting anything. Oh, one thing you can't expect is some abuse on occasion. We've had people come by and just download on us about uh, why they don't like religion and why uh, one fellow told us, all churches are wrong because they say people are wrong and you're, not, you're wrong if you tell people you're wrong. So you're telling me I'm, I'm wrong there, right? Is that what's happening? Okay. Another guy got really mad because he didn't like the Trinity. So we're gonna have people who do that. That's what you can expect. But you can also expect God to move in some hearts. God to be working in some people and watch and see what happens. It's God who makes disciples and he uses folks like us. So that should give you confidence and hope to say, God, do that some more. So pray. What I want to encourage you to do is pray. Pray for revival in the Antelope Valley. Actually, pray for revival in your own house first, in your church second, and then in our community. And ask God, Lord, would you do this? Would you spark revival? Would you bring people to yourself? Would you make more disciples here and see what he does? The history of revival is it usually starts really small, and then it explodes. And so he could do it. He could, we could be adding a chapter to this book called the Antelope Valley Revival. I think that would be awesome. I would love to see that happen. So pray. Pray that God would continue to make disciples. And let's pray now. Lord, would you continue to make disciples? Lord, would you use us? Would you use Revive AV? Would you use Berean Fellowship? Would you use Grace Reformed Baptist Church? Would you use Central Christian? Would you use uh, uh, Grace Chapel? Would you use Lancaster Baptist? Would you use any number of these other Bible-believing, Christ-preaching churches in the Antelope Valley to make disciples? Lord, bring us to unity and purpose and help us to preach the gospel, to love well and to preach the gospel. And Lord, we pray and we anticipate, we look forward, Holy Spirit, to see what you're going to do with that. Accomplish much, we ask. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.